This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. What do we got, Amos? All right, Greg. Well, we kind of talked about the law in the last episode, so we're going to continue on that um, topic. This one comes from Ethan A. How can we explain the idea of Christian liberty as found in Romans 14 to someone who claims that it's just the same thing as making up our own rules? Well, when someone makes a comment like that, I'm going to have to ask for more information. What do you mean it's just making up our own rules? Have you read (laughs) Romans 14? I actually can't see how a person would come to that conclusion by reading Romans 14. Now, this is a chapter that's dedicated to the broader issue of, uh, of being sensitive to weaker brothers and also being careful not to be judgmental, all right? So this passage is talking about areas where there is Christian liberty, where there's genuine liberty. And all that means is where we have latitude to make choices that are not sinful in themselves. But in this particular category, there are some people who think those choices are sinful, but they're mistaken. This is what Paul says. Now, the example here in the text is eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And Paul is saying, hey, the the idol's nothing. The meat that's sacrificed to idols is not tainted. If you want to go in the market and buy this meat, it seems to me, as I recall, maybe that kind of meat was less expensive. But if you want to eat the meat, there's you're not eating any judgment to yourself, essentially. Um, there's nothing wrong with this, all right? It's not what goes into a person, as Jesus pointed out, but it's what comes out of him that matters, okay? So on the one hand, he's establishing a, a, a feature of Christian liberty. But notice what he's saying is Christians have liberty to do the things that are not sinful. And it just turns out that this isn't a sinful thing, and he's making it clear. There are all kinds of other things the Scripture talks about that are that are sinful that we are not supposed to be engaging in. So there's nothing, there's no antinomianism here. There's no antinomian, it's like a, no law, okay? It isn't like we're living a life without law. We're just making up whatever we want as we go along. There's no hint of that in this passage. Paul is just saying, what do we do with circumstances where some people think something is wrong when it isn't wrong? And he says there's two things we do. First of all, the Christian who understands he's the stronger brother, and all that that means is that he has a richer understanding of what's right and wrong, uh, that, that he needs to be sensitive that he doesn't offend or cause to stumble another brother, and characteristically that means not that they don't like what you're doing, but that they're actually falling into sin. Maybe doing the thing that you have the liberty to do, but they think it's wrong, but they do it, and therefore they violate their conscience. So we need to be sensitive to them. But on the other hand, Paul says, the weaker brother should not be judging the stronger brother for exercising their appropriate liberty in Christ to do something that's not a sin. That's the liberty, he's saying. It's not a liberty to make up our own rules. It's the liberty to do things that are not uh, that are not sinful. 
Now, if somebody else thinks they're sinful, then we we kind of we have to be careful of that. And Paul gives directives about how we do that. But at the same time, there's two injunctions here. Uh, one is to not uh, is to not not be um, judge. Let's see, to be sensitive to others who maybe have a weaker conscience. And the other injunction is not for the weaker brother, not to judge the stronger brother in the exercise of his Christian liberty. And so there's different characterizations there. There's not a hint of antinomianism mm-hmm. here. Like, we're, we're lawless. That is, we have no law. We're bereft of guidelines, and therefore we just make it up as we go along. Nothing like that. You can read from chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to verse 23. You're not going to get that idea. Now, some people have said, well, this is Christian relativism. How so? He said, because one set of rules apply to one person, and another set of rules apply to different people in the same circumstance. That's not quite accurate, because what Paul is saying is, it's not sin to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And the analog, the parallel in modern times, characteristically, is alcohol, okay? Um, Paul is saying that's not sinful, all right? Uh, But it is um, an objective moral principle that you are not to violate your own conscience, even if your conscience is misinformed. That's the objective moral principle. And the best thing is to have a conscience that's biblically informed. Mm-hmm. But as long as the weaker brother is the weaker brother, he should he should he should do what he thinks is right, follow his conscience. Because if he doesn't, if he thinks he's sinning and it's not sinning, it's still sin. And uh, but. At the same time, not fall into a different sin, which is judging your brother who is exercising his liberty. Yeah, Paul is certainly very clear about what is sin and what is not sin. This is not a, a blanket statement about do whatever you want as long right. as you think it's okay. Yeah, This is a very specific situation where you have a lot of, of Jewish believers coming out of a situation where they have been very careful to follow the dietary laws and other certain restrictions and laws about, as as Paul says, um, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. You know, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So they've been trained their whole lives to eat certain things and to do certain things on certain days because that's the law that God gave to lead people to Christ, ultimately. But you don't just... I can see how people would be confused about whether or not they needed to continue to do that. So Paul's saying have grace for those people and don't try to make them go against their conscience because, and this is the the overarching thing he gives here in Romans 14, that we are not supposed to live and die for ourselves. We're supposed to do everything for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And so because God will enable us to stand at the end, and that our righteousness depends on him, we don't have to follow these dietary laws and things like that. But um, but like you said, Greg, if you if you if you think you do and you go against it, now you're violating your conscience. Mm-hmm. And that is an objective rule, as you pointed out. So you're right. This is not any sort of, of relativism at all. It's um it's just Paul trying to trying to help people to work out how to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together when people have different 
ideas about how this is all going to work out. Mm-hmm. Okay, and on that note, let's go to a question from Worldview Cafe. Elaborate on weaker and stronger Christians. Is it implied that weaker should eventually mature in their faith and understanding? Is it the stronger's job to help correct the weaker's theology? I know that this depends on the cause of the stumbling and uncomfortableness. Well, it's interesting. I think we can take our view from Paul here. What is Paul doing? (laughs) Paul is, um, first of all, identifying one as the weaker one and one as the stronger one. So the weaker is a pejorative term here. He's not just saying you have some people who believe this and other people who believe this. These are different beliefs. He's saying one set of beliefs reflects an accurate understanding, and those are called the stronger. And one set of beliefs represents an inaccurate understanding, and those are called weaker. And then what does he do? Then he explains why the stronger believer is correct theologically, all right? So he's informing. He's mm-hmm. trying to bring people up to speed, so to speak, on uh, on correct moral thinking about these matters. So um, for Worldview Cafe, I think the answer simply is we do kind of what Paul is doing. If a person is open to hearing the reasons why something they thought was wrong isn't actually wrong before God, fine. And if they're persuaded, fine. Now their conscience is informed by, a, I think, a more accurate understanding of God's uh, desires, and therefore they could they can experience more liberty as Christians than they had before, and therefore that frees up their life to you know enjoy their life more. It seems to me that and have the liberty. The li- having liberty is a a feature of of a satisfying life. You get to enjoy more that God has provided that is not prohibited. So uh, I think this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's giving instruction so that the weaker can be stronger, but he's also exhorting the the um, the stronger not to look down on the weaker brother. That's another element I hadn't mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but to but but to be, but to be, show care to them in their sensitivity. Um, but also, there's nothing wrong with trying to explain to the weaker brother that this point of view reflects theological weakness, not theological strength. Make sense? Yes. Uh, So he says in verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. By the way, pardon me for interrupting, Amy, but this is a part—I mentioned it before— but it almost never mentioned in these discussions now. The person who's offended or bothered, for example, let's say the alcohol thing. I'm convinced biblically that you that imbibing in alcohol is not wrong. There's no biblical argument in favor, uh, in favor of that idea that this is immoral. Uh, there is an ex- excess that is, all right? But... Um, Notice that in our culture now, all the emphasis is on telling the stronger brother not to uh, not to behave in a certain way because someone might stumble. But there's no instruction to the the stumbling brother not to judge the one who's exercising their liberty. I've just not heard it. It's not part of the conversation, but it is Paul's injunction. Yeah, it's true. Throughout this, he 
gives instructions to both sides, and right. he's he's requiring both of them to not judge the other and not to condemn the other in different ways. Right. Right. Now, what makes this difficult to answer the question just plainly is that I think it requires some wisdom, because when you think about Paul's reaction in Galatians, <laughs> oh yeah, it's much stronger than this. So there there have there. There have to be situations where— Well, you where, should describe what that oh, okay. is because he comes down on the Apostle Peter pretty hard. Yeah, so in—well, in, part of the reason is because—well, uh, we're talking about state? Galatians. Uh, what happened was Peter was separating himself and some of the other uh, leaders were separating themselves from the Gentiles, and um, they were saying you had to be circumcised. And so all Galatians is all about what is the law, what was its purpose— why are we not under it now? What you know, we're we're under Christ now. The, he makes this whole argument here, and so what he, I, I think probably maybe this is the key. It was this. It was the um, disruption of the church, the separating of the Jews and the Gentiles that so infuriated Paul in that situation. And so I guess that would make sense in this case where. His goal is to help them to live together and, and, okay, so you disagree until you're brought to maturity, all of you. Here's how you, here's how you, um, fit together. But if, if, you know, but he comes down very hard on people who are dividing over this. Yeah, I think the, um, the other thing that's going on, and just to flesh that circumstance out a little bit more, Peter was hanging with Paul and the Gentiles, everything was fine until the Judaizers came. And then Peter changed his behavior and started hanging with the Judaizers and separating himself with the Gentiles, okay? And he didn't want to offend the Judaizers. The problem is here, some would say, well, see, there he's being sensitive. He's not causing the other to stumble, maybe. But there was something else that was at stake here. It was the nature of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And this is what Paul is arguing in the whole book of Galatians. He's he's just saying what the gospel really amounts to and how this works. And and what what Peter's actions were doing were not I think it's pretty clear when you read the text. Peter wasn't trying to be sensitive to the cultural issues or uh, respond to the cultural sensitivities of the Jew, Jews. He was trying not to get in trouble from the Jews, and so he's siding with them in an act of hypocrisy. And that's what Paul was condemning, this act of hypocrisy. What's at stake here? It's not just making people feel better. It's the nature of the gospel itself Mm -hmm. that's at stake here. And uh, are we one together? And is circumcision, does that make the difference? Paul says in Galatians 5, look at if you were getting circumcised, then Christ is of no use to you. And then he adds the phrase to clarify, you who are seeking to be justified by law. Okay, so this is the issue that's going on here. This this element of creeping into Christianity now, the Judaizer adding justification by law as part of justification by grace, and here's Peter waffling back and forth, and then Paul comes down on him pretty hard in the first couple chapters there of Galatians. Yeah, that's a great point, Greg. Uh, and and you'll notice in the Romans fourteen chapter, he makes a point of saying. You you stand in Christ, so he is uh, he's underscoring this whole idea of of the gospel and the nature of our righteousness and the and our ability to stand before God is all in Christ, and so he's making that clear even in the midst of saying 
you know, you don't judge, you don't condemn either side, but just know that your righteousness is in Christ. No. It's not in these things. Um, so, yeah, that that was I, I like the way you explained that, Greg. All right. Let's squeeze one more question in here. This one comes from Eric. What is the apologetics response to once a person accepts Jesus as Savior, they have been redeemed and as such are no longer a sinner? Well, this has to do with linguistic conventions, okay? And um, in the New Testament, the uh, the phrase sinner was often used of unregenerate people or people who were not in God's camp. It was not meant to to imply that those who were in God's camp in some sense, whether it was the Old Testament sense or the New Testament covenant sense, regeneration, they didn't sin because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And so, uh, but what the word was meant to describe is people who were living in a sinful world and according to their sinful natures. They were following a trajectory according to the flesh, the way the phrase that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. They were according to the flesh. And uh, and the word Gentiles also used that way. Mm-hmm. We are not sinners like the Gentiles or something like that, or look at how the Gentiles work. Well, Paul was using language like this even with Gentiles when he's writing letters to Gentile communities. But he was referring to the Gentiles as those outside of the, the, the camp. Interestingly, I mean, this, this is a subtle... I think, reference to the fact that those Gentiles who are now believers as Christians have entered into the Jewish covenant system, the new covenant in particular. They have been grafted in. He talks about this in the book of Romans, and so are not considered outsiders or Gentiles, but now drawn in because of the Jewish covenant and the Jewish Messiah that now uh, they fall under, even though they're Gentiles. And the, that dividing wall is kind of broken down between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's in, in Ephesians 2. Yeah, but notice, even though it's broken down, it, everybody's not nothing. <laughs> what they are, are, it's not like Christianity is this whole new thing. What Christianity is, is the fulfillment of covenant Judaism, which Gentiles are now included in, which was a, a, a largely a secret or a mystery that has now been revealed in the New Testament. Um, but in any event, it's a—I'm um, um, oh, trying to remember where I was going with this particular point, uh, the, or the, the sinner's language. And so, so these are linguistic conventions. That's all they are. Everybody's a sinner, and we all sin. We think of the two greatest commandments that Jesus offered, and we all break these commandments virtually every second of our lives. We don't love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. I have never done that. I, I, I have no conscious awareness of a moment in 50 years of knowing Christ where that's been true of me. And um, and precious few moments where I've considered my neighbor uh, over myself, some on occasion, but not. nevertheless, I'm constantly in sin. So all are sinners all the time. The New Testament language is using the word sinner oftentimes simply describe the outsiders, those who are not under the covenant of grace. They are also referred to as Gentiles, even though many of those who are under the covenant of grace are, in fact, non-Jewish, 
but now they've been drawn into a Jewish provision, a Jewish covenant they are grafted in. So I guess if someone were to say this statement to you, the first thing you could ask is, what do you mean by a sinner? There you go. Because <laughs> that's the key to this whole thing. Because clearly, I mean, we just talked about Peter sinning. We talked about Paul uh, excoriating Peter yeah. for what he was doing. He yeah. was sinning. Um, look at First Corinthians. They were sinning. The whole book is written to tell them that they were sinning. And then, of course, uh, back to Romans for a second. <laughs> Uh, Why am I not surprised? (laughs) So in Romans 8, when Paul is talking about how because we're in Christ, now the Holy Spirit enables us to put our sin to death, he talks about how we are groaning within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, for our our complete uh, redemption so that there's no longer any sin. And he says— Let's see. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly Mm -hmm. for it. So he's looking ahead to a place where there's only righteousness in ourselves, in creation, and we have not made it there yet. And that's it. That whole idea is very clear. Mm -hmm. So I think that distinction, just asking the question of what they mean by sinner. Yeah, good one. All right, we're out of time. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Worldview Cafe, and thank you, Ethan. We appreciate hearing from you. Hopefully I got those names right this time. (laughs) All right, we love to hear from you. Send us your question on Twitter with the hashtag STRask, or you can go through our website at str.org. Just look for our hashtag STRask podcast page, and you'll find a link there. And make your question short. If it's short, we will consider it. All right, thanks for listening. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 